welcome back to another episode of Voices, our new podcast where we discuss domestic violence as part of the Free Yourself Global campaign. And today we're very lucky to be talking with Will Marling. Hi, Will. Hello, Peter. <laughs> um, and maybe, Will, you can introduce yourself to our audience and, and tell everybody who you are and, and what you're, uh, a little bit about your incredible experience in this space. Sure, I'd be glad to. Thanks so much for including me in this important conversation. I, well, my present role is president of Victims of Crime International, which is really a, a collection, an association of victim assistance, victim advocacy organizations around the world. And our goal is really to enhance and raise the voice of victims globally. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that victims are in every quadrant of the world and some receive better service and attention and protection than others. And so we want to raise that level of service for everybody by joining our voices together. My background really is in uh, a variety of things. I've worked with law enforcement many years ago. My most recent foray has been leading a national victim assistance organization in the United States where we promoted advocacy. Our mission was to champion dignity and compassion for those harmed by crime and crisis. And um, I've since left that role about a year ago, and I'm an independent consultant in, in this world. But also in the, in the time frame, I also did a lot of response to mass casualty situations and uh, you know, domestic violence situations, a lot of, a lot of different scenarios where Obviously, we, you know, intervention was necessary and supporting victims was important. Great. And so, so you're based in Washington, D.C. now, right? I am based in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so maybe you can tell us a bit about the, the work that you guys are doing at Victims of Crime International now. Yeah, well, Victims of Crime International, as I mentioned, is really a, a collection. Uh, it's, a, it's a meaningful association of victim advocacy groups around the world. And when we have an, a monthly gathering, obviously it's, it's a telecon typically, we'd love to get to the point where we can actually have a gathering, a conference. But when we, when we meet, we talk about the key high level issues that are, are happening in our particular areas. And by doing that, we're educating each other we're also, you know, validating the work, but we also are constantly exchanging information because, quite frankly, in, in the world today, you know, more than ever, it is truly a global neighborhood. I mean, we, the phrase is almost in some ways lost because it's, it's so common, but on the other hand, it is a real situation. The, the terrorist bombings, uh, domestic violence, whatever it is, it happens around the world, and it also affects different folks in different sectors, sometimes at the same time. We think about that with terrorism pretty easily. You know, the, uh, the, the Paris bombings, there were lots of internationals from a French stand, standpoint involved in that. But when you talk about domestic violence, particularly in Europe, let's say, you've got uh, multicultural families from, from different countries who, who create a union and then have domestic violence as part of uh, their family situation. And so you know, that's an international situation when it, when it happens like that. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it, and it also depends on what level of media attention goes to certain things as to how much we validate that from a global perspective as well. I mean, I pulled some statistics out of Australia last week where between the year 1900 and 19, uh, 2015, I think there had been uh, 12 deaths associated with terrorism in Australia. But within the first five mm -hmm. months of 2015, there had been 41 women killed by intimate partners. Yet a lot mm -hmm. of the media attention and funding goes into terrorism, which is important, but a lot of these other really, really serious issues are getting missed. So, um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and not so much now in Australia, because Australia has just put a huge amount of funding into a big culture change addressing domestic violence issues in Australia. But when we look globally and when we look at the research and when we look at the work that the NGOs are doing around the world, it, it kind of uh, exists everywhere, whether it's uh, people in, you know, the East Congolese experiencing post-conflict situation or, you know, people in downtown New York. So um, can you mm -hmm. talk to us maybe about, like, how the NGOs are working uh, from a global perspective? Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I find that often a lot of the NGOs are working very regionally and are kind of missing some great opportunities to collaborate internationally with um, folks from around the world who could possibly resource or knowledge share to try and, you know, mm -hmm. collaborate in resolving some of these issues. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, the work that you're doing specifically is going to help build bridges in this regard because many times the work is very local and, in fact, it's very communal when you talk about specifically domestic violence, domestic abuse, that's in a sense, I want to say it's kind of a private crime uh, because it's, it's many times behind closed doors and it's, it's, it's localized and isolated. That doesn't mean that it doesn't impact a lot of people in a family. And it doesn't mean that nobody knows about it because many times people do, you know, they're the neighbors can be aware of what they hear and what they see, but it's not like a, a terrorism incident where it's very public and, you know, the media flies in and wants to capture that and tell the world and, and, and spread it on social media or even, even it emerges on social media. And the NGOs, the, the challenge is really bringing attention and resources to it. So I, I have worked at a higher level in a national association. I mean, I've been on the field as well. I've been on the ground dealing with critical incidents. But when you're at a higher level, trying to say, okay, where can we make these connections for people? We're learning what, what is working in some sectors and, you know, what is not working in others. And then we're trying to learn from those. And so, for instance, in the United States, it, let, let's talk about, you know, domestic abuse as an issue. We have um, a, a couple of national organizations, and they are both important but from the standpoint of domestic abuse, they, they do have different perspectives. And, you know, some, some are frustrated because they don't like the government's response and they don't like government interaction, inter, intervention. And so they want to find alternate means to support victims of domestic violence. Another group, you know, they see policy as, as significant and more significant maybe than the other group. And so even in the context of the United States, people working in the sphere sometimes have very different views about how we solve this problem. And they're the ones right in the middle of it. So, you know, that, that's an example of what this particular type of crime 
this particular type of trauma uh, creates. It, it can create this separation. And of course, from that, when you're trying to get people's attention and bring resources to bear, you can see where that challenge emerges. <clears throat> Again, as you know, terrorism, lots of attention. Domestic violence, very key, significant, as you pointed out, you know, the, the great disparity of uh, the, the uh, even lethality in the United States. And yet, you know, we don't really want to talk about it. I mean, it's, it's one of those things we don't like to acknowledge because it really touches the social fabric. It's one of those things we don't like to acknowledge because it's like the person next door and the family next door that, uh, that we just don't want to get involved with that. Well, I mean, we want to, we want to stop terrorists, but you know, what do we do with these people that are abusive to a spouse? So mm. it's a big challenge. Mm. And we're also, you know, ignoring the potentiality that domestic violence has as a seed for these other types mm. of violent crimes in society, you know, where a child oh, yeah. is, is raised in a violent household and is taught about, you know, violent forms of communication and then go on to uh, act out aggressively, whether that is in the form of, you know, a, some kind of like terrorist act or, you know, uh, an armed holdup or a bullying mm -hmm. in the in, in mm -hmm. the schoolyard or whatever it is like that violence begets violence and so yeah. when oh, we Peter, that's so good yeah and so when we um when we look at the formation of violence in terms of early childhood and then what that is doing then for future generations and how we operate at a societal or cultural level uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, and it, and it's a, I think it's a real challenge, and 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 this is where I understand where the NGOs are coming into these kind of conflict sometimes with each other about ideas of what's going to solve the problem because, you know, you have one party that wants to treat this as a criminal issue, and then you have mm -hmm. other people or other groups that are saying, okay, well that's fair enough, but we want to treat this as a health issue because mm -hmm. we're essentially looking at trauma and the passing on of trauma through generations uh, right. and these kinds of things. And so then there's like a lot of help for victims um, and, uh, and women and a, a big gender lens that's applied to this particular issue. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. what happens is these abusers get incarcerated for uh, their violent crimes, which, you know, absolutely they should be held, held accountable for their, their acts. But there's no kind of like rehabilitation or support that's getting to assist them with resolving what's driving the violent behaviour in the first place. And I think that mm -hmm. domestic violence has one of the largest rates of, of uh, recurrence of any other violent mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. um, that's right. So, yeah, yeah. So how do we? How do you think we resolve this? Like at a at an NGO at a, at a like um, at a higher level, uh, an expert level, when you have these yeah. schools of thought that are not only competing for like uh, ideas but also competing for funding at a national level. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, that that's a a really important question and uh, such a solid one, and. You know, your your insights are great there because they, they lead us down paths that, again, um, I would say the lack of political leadership in many sectors is one of the bigger struggles. Why? Because it's much easier to to concretely look at somebody who's committed a crime and say, okay, 
this is how we're going to respond to you as a society. It's much more challenging to back up and say, okay, what are the things that are contributing to people who end up committing crime? You know, and, and try to address those in a meaningful way as a society. You know, some of those problems aren't going to be solved by legislation for sure. At the same time, the resources poured in many times are on the back end of solving the problem. I mean, it, it's just so classic that, you know, the cost of uh, prisons and, and incarceration and all those things are quite expensive relative to the services that we should could render on the front end, you know, the mental health services to support people to, in, if, if possible, uh, go toward the protection prevention side of this equation. But it's, it's really hard. My, you know, my frustration in, in leading a national victim assistance organization in Washington, D.C., being on Capitol Hill talking is, is the lack in many ways of, of real vision and real leadership to address these issues in meaningfully productive ways. Uh, again, it's, it's much easier to react to things and pour the money into the back end rather than say, okay, what are we going to do for, you know, mental health support? For instance, you know, one of the big issues in law enforcement is responding to situations of what appears to be potential domestic abuse or domestic violence. And if it's, if it's a, a mental health situation, officers in many sectors don't have any resources beyond, uh, you know, some form of detainment or, you know, worse. You know, I, I always say you get a police officer's attention when they pull out their pen to take a report, they pull out their handcuffs to secure you, or worse, they pull out their firearm to stop you. Mm. And we need something even before that. And, and I'm in no way critical of law enforcement. I'm very supportive. Many of them will acknowledge, well, how, what are my options here? Mm. I don't want to go, you know, to, to even, I don't want, you know, the report side is fine, but is that ultimately going to solve the problem? And, and again, where is this coming from? So you're, you're really pointing out some significant societal issues. Uh, I, you know, as a person who wasn't uh, a victim driven to, into the work, I had a different perspective. Uh, I had, I won't say I was more holistic because certainly there are survivors who, you know, who have a bigger picture about how we resolve these issues. But I, I did for sure. And I was asking myself, okay, how can we stop this stuff? How can we, what, what can we do on the front end of it uh, to help support and change this? And this comes out in a lot of ways. I mean, in mass casualty violence, you know, the ones that aren't driven by ideology, let's say in terrorism, uh, you know, we know that those individuals have significant issues, uh, mental health issues that are driving uh, their response. And many times they were bullied. And the, the things that you've pointed out, many times they have been in, in, you know, family violent situations. And that caused in them some significant changes emotionally. Mm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like if we, if we bring this conversation around, because, you, you know, you're working at a higher level in terms of uh, policy and, um, and, 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 and at NGO and uh, formative kind of level around this stuff. Like if we talk about policy, I mean, I don't know uh, if our listeners are aware of this case, but it, it, it was reported recently. It referred back to uh, Jacob Wetterling, you know, about this case, um, Will? 
Oh, it's not really the the case Sorry. itself is not important, but I think the idea is important, which is why I'm raising it. So it was a, a little boy in uh, Minneapolis that was uh, abducted from his bike when he was 11 back in 1989. And um, mm -hmm. right. he, yeah, and so he disappeared and then it was, uh, you know, discovered that he was like brutally raped um, and killed. And uh, that case shocked uh, the community and basically saw the introduction of um, the, the first uh, sexual offender registry. And uh, the first sexual offender right. registry. And, uh, and then that later went on to, um, it was the Jacob Wesling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and, and then two years later, Megan's Law was mandated too, which meant that, you know, uh, sexual offenders couldn't live, work or loiter within, I think, a thousand miles of a school. Uh, so it became very, very strict. But what was interesting was that Jacob's mother, Patty, did a whole, dedicated her life to this research in this area after Jacob's um, terrible abduction and, and found that the majority of sexual offenders were not these dodgy guys in trench coats standing on the side of a street waiting to snatch a kid, that the majority of sexual offenders existed within the home. Um, and it was a percentage that was very high, like in the in the ninety ninety three percent or something, uh, like known to the family, either in the family as an aunt or an uncle or a parent or at least a friend of the family. And so then this policy of creating this um, list or registry wasn't actually getting to the majority of sexual offenders because the majority of sexual offences wouldn't actually get reported because they existed within the family. Does that make sense? You're right. And so then there's this like, oh, yeah, I, very much uh, so. there's this like also this like challenge between, um, you know, uh, policy making in response to public pressure versus mm -hmm. policy making in uh, the public interest. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because then what's happened... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because then what's happened is these sex offenders that have been listed on these uh, registers and with Megan's Law being introduced, you know, it's almost impossible in the States to work anywhere that's not within a thousand, uh, a thousand mile radius of a, of a school or find a house or any of this kind of yeah. stuff. So even if they wanted to rehabilitate, they've got nowhere to go. So... Right. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 an interesting yeah. kind of conflict, that not just at an NGO level, but then at a policy making level. How do we develop policy that's not just this knee jerk reaction to fear and and grief, but actually look more deeply into it and say, well, who who are the bulk of these kinds of violent offenders and where do they exist? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. and then how do we well, deal with that? You know. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I mean, it's one of the reasons I say, you know, it's the, it's the political leadership that's missing in many ways. And this is, you know, you're, you're illustrating the prime example. I mean, the data supporting one approach versus the more popular or more publicly reactive approach. And by the way, I think it's more like a thousand feet rather than a thousand miles. <laughs> Nobody well, would I, ever, I'm Australian. No, I don't know the difference between feet and miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you know, you got you got some crazy metrics going on there. Yeah. But it's, um, 
still, even 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 from that standpoint, it can be hard for anybody on the registry because you know schools are fairly abundant, so you can have a hard time in an urban setting finding a place where that's not uh, crossing that line. I'll give you a, a you know a simple example. I I have an app on my phone that tells me instantly the parameters that I that I give it of to who this registered sex offenders are like mm-hmm. and it, it gives a radius and then it, it shows the picture and all this stuff and so kind of the, jo- the joke and I'm not making fun of you know sex offenders or sex offending as an issue I'm saying but the joke in our work is you know those are the people that we feel good about because those are the people that are registered they're updating when they move to a community they let people know you know they're on the registry they've got their picture it's the people who've never been caught which is a lot of people and the people who went off the radar that that concern us and we don't know who they are we don't know where they are and i know i know one parent in particular who experienced this and the individual in question he got off even though he was charged he got off uh, on his sentence and then he went on the lam and she got a private investigator's license and tracked him across the country every time he moved to a new jurisdiction she called the police and reported that a, a sex offender was living in the community. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, nobody's got the resources to do that. She had the wherewithal. She's an amazing person, but mm-hmm. like you're saying, where are we going to, where can we put, the, where can we put the resources to make the most difference? I mean, it, it sounds crass on one hand, but it, it's actually better to focus on solving these problems. And, and that's why political leadership is so crucial uh, to saying, okay, let's find out what the real problems are. And if we plug this hole, then we stop a much bigger issue mm. rather than saying, okay, we're going to plug this hole and, you know, very little changes or very little is impacted. Mm. This is why, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, you know, in some ways a desperate situation because it's the political leadership we need to stand up mm. and ask these meaningful questions and then work to resolve them from that standpoint. But, you know, I live in the United States and I'm in Washington, D.C., and I will admit personally, I'm quite frustrated with the, uh, some significant gaps in this area. Yeah. And I think, so. you know, but I think that media has a part to play in that. And that's why part of this Free Yourself Global campaign is largely around, uh, you know, the creation of media that mm-hmm. is trying to have a really balanced and um, and holistic view at this particular issue. Because like, uh, yeah. you know, like Patty Wedling discovered after she did her, you know, two years of, de- of um, two decades of research, if 90% of sexual offenders are in the family, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and that a large bulk of those go unreported, then, you know, we're dealing on the sexual registry, uh, a minority of sexual offenders, essentially, but putting all of our resources there mm-hmm. rather than into resolving this issue of domestic violence, you know, which includes, you know, the physical mm-hmm. violence, the sexual violence, the, you know, the emotional violence uh, within the home towards children mm-hmm. and intimate partners. So, you know, if you're trying right. to look at, like, how to get to the source of, of something <laughs> to stop it perpetuating mm-hmm. into broader communities, etc., um, it, it seems interesting to me still that um, the media seems to have so much power in shaping what is um, big, high-ticket issues <laughs> for people mm-hmm. like uh, mm-hmm. like terrorism and I'm not wanting to invalidate these issues by any stretch but that the issues which seem to be quieter and more insidious and undercover like you said uh, you know the 
domestic violence issue seems to be more of a private crime, but yet mm -hmm. fueling so many other social problems. Uh, it's yeah. interesting to me that this is not top of the agenda in in more respects. Well, it's, yeah, it's, but it's being willing to ask the right questions, Peter, which you're willing to ask, which is why it's so crucial what you're doing. Let's talk about the sexual assault thing for a minute. You know, if you colleagues of mine that are experts in this field tell me that 3% of rapists spend one day in jail or more, one day or more in jail, 3% of rapists. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, that, that's a, that's not one particular uh, problem. There's not one particular issue that's causing that because that's, that's a huge societal issue. If 97% of rapists don't spend any time in jail, that's not a justice system issue. It's not an arresting issue. It's not only, a, you know, it is a societal challenge because we simply, my, my conclusion is we simply don't believe victims. Mm. So, you know, again, where are we gonna put our resources? The other, their other contention is that most sexual crimes are committed by very few people. And the reason that they continue to perpetuate them is because they're simply never stopped, which is verified or validated by the other statistic. So, again, where are we going to put our resources? Like you're saying, we, we, can, we can take a populist kind of uninformed view and, and run with that, those assumptions, or we can turn around and look and say, okay, do we have the courage to really tackle it where, where, where the problems really lie, you know? And statistically, that would imply so, that a large portion of that's in the home, which obviously well, a is, large, is, yes. is a lot, you know, if you're getting to the source in particular of child sexual assault. Mm -hmm, Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not far from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children for the United States. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've met with those folks. And, you know, one of the biggest issues they have in terms of this is, is in-home child porn studios. I mean... Mm -hmm you know, they know that that's going on. And the, you know, the children of the, the parents are exploiting the children to that end. I mean, the only way they can really tackle that is by analyzing the video. But even that, I mean, wow, think about that challenge. I mean, it's, that's a big one to tackle right there. Yeah. And it's, it's so undercover and it's so hidden. And often, you know, because of, you know, when we're looking at domestic violence and we're looking at these power relationships that exist within the family and why violence can be so insidious within the family is because the victim, whether it be um, the husband or the wife or the child is not... Um, given a voice because of this threat of harm all the time, then the, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think I think you just cut out a little bit there. Well, did you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear yeah. you fine. Yeah, um, you know, then uh, you know, then there's this dissuasion or this almost like an inability for fear, and especially from the child's perspective, like children are so loving that you know, in many incidences of of child abuse, even when family or social services go to try and support the child, the child will still defend the parent, you mm -hmm. know, because of this yeah. love relationship, because of this trust, even though there is this horrific abuse going on. So mm -hmm. how does, you know, at a national level, like how are you guys looking at, at trying to like, especially for kids, you know, who are the least powerful in the family equation? Um, how do we encourage them to open up? 
and yeah well <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's such a huge issue for the the least empowered in our society in many ways i mean people with disabilities face challenges uh children with disabilities face these kinds of things how do we how do we work toward trusting their their you know their instincts to even disclose to us um it's a it's a common it's a common, common, common education. I mean, it's a continual education, I should say. It's not a common education. It's a continual education, especially for folks who are first responders and that kind of thing. How do we, how do we give them the tools to, to really see what might be going on? I mean, w- we have a society where, you know, it's, it's due process and, and presumptive innocence, and that's part of the legal side of things mm-hmm. and justice. But when it's, it comes to the safety of a child, you know, the reaction here is, you know, the, the duty to report and we, we take a child at his or her word and, and, and you know, work hard to say, okay, uh, children don't make these things up, you know, let's act on them. But I'll tell you, I mean, that, that's the one thing that in some ways is kind of mind boggling. You know, you look in a family situation and somebody who's completely in control of that situation, you know, an adult, and that child is very, I mean, it's how, how do we intervene in that? I mean, it's very, very difficult. And, and so, you know, these kids grow up and then we discover, and then of course that's when we need to render support for sure, because they're struggling with all kinds of issues that emerge out of being, out of experienced such horrible childhood trauma. Mm. Yes. Well, there's certainly no easy answers, <laughs> but yeah. And I think, you know, the important thing is that we, we ask these hard questions, you know, uh, because then at least we can start to think a bit more holistically and a bit more about the tougher stuff mm-hmm. and how do we get to the heart of these problems. So yeah. I really, and uh, if I could add one thing, yeah. you know, just, just, I'll, I'll be short on this, but uh, you know, we've we've really come up, uh, I think, in a fair bit on, say, human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we've resolved that issue at all. But what has emerged is a lot of people are being educated on the issue of human trafficking and starting to be alert and then seeing the signs of human trafficking. And maybe that's where some of our resources could be put toward educating us to signs and, and symptoms of these kinds of things and then empowering people to really be, you know, appropriately interventive. I mean, if, if I'm a neighbor and I hear somebody screaming for help, I'm going to go help them, likely. Same with a <laughs> child. But, you know, we, we, don't, we, don't know, we don't know what's going on. We ask ourselves that question. You know, you see somebody in a grocery and how the child is interacting with the parent. Well, is that an abusive situation? Is it a trafficking situation? I mean, most of us aren't even paying attention to that. Mm. Uh, but like you're saying, we could begin to educate people so that we could at least be alert to the potential. Mm. And that's where things begin. That's where change begins. Absolutely. Well, I thank you so much for your time, Will. Our time is up. Um, but it's been fantastic to try and nut out some of these these tougher <laughs> questions with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I really, really appreciate that. You know, I've enjoyed a conversation to a point. You know, the topics are always challenging. But, yeah, the, topic, uh, cer- the topics are challenging for sure. Yeah, no question. But it's always, you know, I find it in, enriching and encouraging when, when uh, people like you are really wanting to make a difference. So thank you for that. Mm, well, thank you. And, and keep going with all the great work you guys are doing at, at Victims of Crime International, bringing um, international advocacy groups together. We need a lot more international collaboration. So... Uh, It's great work and keep it up. 
And Thank I'll, you. I'll Couldn't see agree you more. Later. Thanks so much, Will. All righty. Thanks so much.